Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Get ready for a rendezvous with our sister planet Venus, and not just one mission, but two. NASA is awarding approximately $500 million per mission for development. The first is known as Da Vinci, which stands for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging. And the second is Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy, or Veritas for short. You know, now that we understand the context of Venus, of you know, global warming, climate change, and also looking at finding other planets out there that's very similar to Venus, uh, we want to go back and try and with modern tools uh, to understand, you know, uh, how how Venus evolved. I'll speak to a specialist on the ground floor, getting the mission set for its future liftoff date. Plus. So January 2018, we were in a La Nina pattern, and it was a pretty well-defined one, but we still ended up with a, with a pretty strong severe weather episode. The seasonal outlook for winter is out, and meteorologist Erica Delgado chats with our favorite weather-or-not guest, Robert Moyeda, to see what lays ahead and what our dry season will look like. That's coming up next. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. It'll be roughly 40 years by the time a man-made probe returns to Venus, our sister planet. At one time, it had a very similar atmosphere to Earth and could have harbored life. But something happened along the way, and it turned into a living hell. Bone-crushing pressure, boiling hot temperatures, and toxic gases. This runaway hothouse environment could be the future of Earth. This is why it's of utmost importance to study Venus. Today we have the pleasure to speak with Constant Sang, Senior Research Scientist at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. He works for the Veritas mission. I am so interested in these uh, Venus missions. First of all, as, as a young lad growing up, when uh, we landed on the moon, and 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 I thought space was definitely going to be the next big big thing. Um, I, I I always fell in love with Venus. Not so much Mars, yeah. but Venus. I always read, you know, it's our sister world and. And it, and it seemed like at one time it was such a beautiful place. Uh, what, what happened to Venus? Why did it turn out to be the inhospitable place it is today? Yeah, I mean, what, one interesting fact before we dive into the science of Venus uh, is that, you know, we sent probes when you talk about the moon landing, right, uh, we right. sent probes to uh, Venus before we actually uh, went to Mars. Wow. And so... Uh, it was it was one of the, it's actually the the first planet that we went to uh, outside of of Earth. But uh, yeah, so you know Venus is super interesting and 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 weird, right? You you look at Venus and it's about the same size, ninety percent of the mass and size uh, of Earth, 
And yet, if you look at the surface, if you look at the atmosphere, it's totally different from the weather that we have, the climate that we have here on Earth. And so the big question for the last you know, 50, 60 years of space exploration uh, is, is how, how that became the case, right? How did you know, a, a terrestrial planet with you know, big mountains, volcanoes on the surface of Venus, with this uh, thick atmosphere, with clouds on the surface uh, uh, in the atmosphere of Venus, become so inhospitable to life? Uh, and yet somehow Earth with its plate tectonics, with this, you know, very, you know, um, uh, good climate uh, was was a place where, you know, life thrived. And the, the question that we have across all planetary science and astronomy uh, in, in many ways is, 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 is obviously is life unique here on Earth or is it uh, can it start everywhere else in the universe? And so when we look at for instance, put, to put it into context, we've discovered about around more than 4,000 planets around other star systems right. um, when we look out into the universe. Um, and it turns out that a lot of the planets that we see out there in the universe is where Venus and Earth are. And so the question becomes, when you look at these planets, are they like Earth, where you have life, you know, teeming with with biology, with with liquid water, with with you know uh, a pleasant a atmosphere that 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 life can thrive, right. or is it like Venus, where it's you know 90, 90 bar pressure, which is basically you know a, a kilometer below the ocean, is is about the pressure that you experience on the surface of Venus, you know, you have you know, 400 degrees Fahrenheit plus temperatures, you know, the temperature in your household oven. And so obviously life can't exist on the surface of Venus right now. But the question is, did life start, you know, uh, on Venus in the in the previous, in the past, and right. somehow the, the evolution of the two planets diverged somehow through geology, through atmospheric science, uh, and, and created, you know, the Venus that we see here today. So if you were saying that one of our very early missions was actually to Venus, why has it taken us so long? I mean, I know that the Russians did send some stuff, but why has it taken us so long to go back? I think one of, what, what, the last time NASA sent a mission to Venus was the Magellan spacecraft. Uh, um, it was launched by the space shuttle uh, and it reached, uh, you know, uh, Venus in the mid, mid to late 1980s. And it was a radar mission. It peered through the thick atmosphere and did a global map of the geology of Venus. Um, and throughout the you know last uh, up to up to Magellan, we, we we saw that the atmosphere was was really inhospitable to life. Whereas Mars had um, geology that indicated liquid water flowed on the surface of Mars. And so um, there was a big drive for you know, the last 20, 30 years to try and discover whether you know, there's still life on Mars. And that drove a lot of attention away from looking at Venus and looking at current life uh, on Mars. And you know, that, that question is still up for debate. But, you know, now that we understand the context of Venus, of, you know, global warming, climate change, and also right. looking at finding other planets out there that's very similar to Venus, uh, we want to go back and try and re with modern tools uh, to understand, you know, uh, how, how Venus evolved. So now we have two missions in the works. We have Da Vinci and Veritas. What is the difference between both? Yeah, so Veritas is a radar mission, so very much like Magellan, uh, but with a much more powerful radar. Okay. And so we can look at the surface in exquisite detail to look at whether there was plate tectonics, you know, whether there was active, as there is active volcanism on the surface of Venus now. We don't know. We don't know, you know, if there are hotspots, there are indications that 
uh, Venus is geologically active right now with volcanoes, with outgassing. And so uh, we want to go back and look at the surface. We want to look at the atmosphere at, near the surface and see if there's activity right now. Um, we want to understand whether there was plate tectonics that that um, drove uh, drove you know uh, subduction uh, and and weather uh, in the in the past. So Veritas is much more a geology mission based on a radar. Uh, instrument, okay. uh, whereas Da Vinci is a probe that's good, actually going to go through the atmosphere and collect atmospheric samples. Um, and one of the key things they are trying trying to measure is um, the abundance of noble gases. So uh, abundance of argon, xenon, um, and a lot of the noble gases that we have information on Venus uh, for Mars and for, for Earth, but we don't have for Venus. And what that allows us to do is model the evolution of the outgassing from volcanoes in the past to study you know, how, when, when uh, periods of volca volcanism happened uh, on, on Venus. So how long do we expect the probe to last with all that incredible pressure on the planet <laughs> yeah so it's going to go through the atmosphere uh, da vinci is going to have a parachute that's going to open up and it's going to glide to you know fall uh, in, in, onto the surface and so you know roughly a few hours is is the uh, descent time of da vinci uh, it's not su supposed to uh, survive on the surface although obviously uh, we as scientists hope that it does um, but throughout the whole descent of the atmosphere is going to measure, you know, exquisite detail, all these abundances of, of, of gases and, and the composition of the, of the atmosphere. So now Veritas is obviously going to be uh, orbiting the planet and taking all these uh, radar observations. How long is that mission uh, uh, task for us? Uh, a year, two years, more? Yeah, so uh, a, a number of years, uh, you know, I think uh, we're still planning uh, the orbit right now. Um, it's supposed to, Veritas is supposed to launch in 2028, 2029 timeframe, uh, and it should um, be around Venus for, I think, two Venus years, so about three Earth years, uh, roughly. Um, I think things are always in flux right now, so we're still planning that. Um, and then obviously Da Vinci is only for a few hours, but uh, they also have a relay satellite that's going to observe uh, the atmosphere and the descent of the probe as it drops. So as we look at our home base, our planet, and we see Venus, uh, do we see our, ourselves in Venus in the future? Uh, well, potentially. Um, so obviously we know from climate records and current uh, global temperatures that Earth is warming up. And so, you know, we understand that that's due to, uh, you know, the greenhouse effect and global warming. Um, with If you look at the atmosphere of Venus right now, it's um, like 95% CO2, carbon dioxide. And what that does is trap all the heat uh, within the planet right, and, right. And, 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 uh, and, and keeps it at this really hot temperature. And so uh, the, 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 that's the million dollar question. You know, how, <laughs> how is, is Venus um, a, a projection of, of Earth in a thousand years, right? Or, you know, tens of thousands of years. Right. Um, and uh, I think uh, what we're trying to do with global, global modeling is to take all the physics that we know about planets, you know, whether it's, you know, atmospheric circulation, you know, heating, and um, even plate tectonics when it comes to volcanism and uh, and the effect of the ocean on Earth, and try to model that and see you know, if you if you scroll through time based on what we know now, does Earth become uh, a future Venus? And uh, I think you know we have to be very careful about that for sure. Absolutely. 
Um, so as we move ahead here with the Veritas mission, and obviously it's going to be about another 20 years before, no, wait, did you say 2028? Uh, so 2028, yeah, so you know, and, uh, we launched for seven years from now, roughly. Okay, so tell me, uh, what are all of the technical challenges that need to be met really in that short period of time? We may think it's long, but to put all these technical things into place and to go ahead and, and actually succeed in orbiting around a planet that's so far away, Give me a nutshell of what are all the technical challenges that need to be met. Um, so, over the last you know fifty years, we've we perfected space travel. I mean, with with satellites and probes, um, it is still a risky business, and uh, there's a lot of work that goes into building a mission. Um, I think if you if you look at Ultimately, this is a science mission. We want to understand. We will get obviously get there and understand uh, all the science, wh wh whatever that may be, and making sure that the instruments are designed so that we can meet the science. We'll call it science requirements, right? We right, say we right. can measure the abundance of a certain gas or look at a surface feature to a certain resolution uh, with an, with an error bar, right? And usually, when we go to these new places with a new mission, the error bars are shrinking and shrinking because we want to understand deeper and deep, uh, deeper questions uh, and have those answered. And so the challenge really is making sure that the instruments are designed such that we we are sensitive to that and uh, we haven't left anything out of the, of the calculations when we build the instruments. Um, obviously, flying there, you know, Venus is 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 the closest planet uh, to Earth, and so it's not like going to Pluto where it takes ten years. Right. And yet, you know, you, you you have a very narrow target that you have to hit. So Venus getting there is relatively easy um, from from a from a mission architecture um, standpoint. But yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, going through with, with Da Vinci, um, they'll have to think about how um, very carefully, you know, making sure that um, obviously the heat shield that that goes into it is well well built, but also the instruments that collect the information as you descend isn't clogged up by aerosols uh, and as you alluded before, it can survive a range of temperatures uh, and acidities because uh, Venus has this global cloud cover um, that's made up of sulfuric acid uh, and water. Um, it's, it's between 75% and 100% uh, H2SO4. Um, and so it's very acidic atmosphere, acidic uh, clouds that's flying through. And so they want to make sure that, that all the instruments work and all the spacecraft works throughout the descent of, of the spacecraft. And just a little side note, how long is it going to take us to get there? Uh, so to get it again, the, the travel time between Earth and Venus greatly depends on the alignment of where Earth right. and Venus are and exactly when they launch um, to give you some context. Um, so the quickest you can get there is about five and a half months. Um, but there are current plans with you know these missions right now that can take eighteen months. So it really and the launch window, what we call the launch window, the time from when you launch um, uh, through when when you and when you get there, um, it can only you know the difference between a few months uh, of the launch date can actually have a massive impact on the flight time of the spacecraft to get to Venus from like I said six months to somewhere eighteen months or so. One last uh, question, and this is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I have read so many things about Venus, and one article that I read was that there might be a possibility of some sort of life in the upper levels of the atmosphere, that, that would, it would almost harbor 
enough conditions that we could get some microbial life? Is this still a thing? Yeah, so the um, idea that the Venus atmosphere has life uh, is really intriguing. Um, if you look at the cloud level on Venus, it sits uh, at a temperature and pressure range that's very similar to Earth, actually. So unlike uh, Earth, where all the atmosphere, all the clouds are, are near the surface, on Venus is really high up, which means that's actually in a really cool and temperate uh, place. Uh, with that, also the clouds have, like I said, water vapor, what, um, traces of water particles. And so in theory, uh, where, where there's water, a little bit of water, where there's you know, temperate temperatures and pressures, um, there's always a possibility of, of life. And so, um, and there's some um, chemical signatures that might indicate that uh, there might be potential for life there. Um, but obviously chemistry and biology are very difficult to disentangle. Um, when you look at just the pure chemistry, then it's like, oh, that's that's very intriguing, but but it can always come from natural, you know, production as opposed to biology. So the the, the verdict is still out. All right. Well, hopefully, both of these missions will help us uh, understand our uh, our next door neighbor a little better. Uh, Mr. Sang, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. I loved it. I I learned a lot. And thanks again. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for your time. These missions are tasked for launch in the 2028-2030 timeframe. Coming up next, winter weather outlook for South Florida. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station. Seven News. Seven questions. It's safe to say that all of South Florida is celebrating the fact that the rainy season ended mid-October and that the end of the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season is just around the corner. As we look forward to the next few months, many are left wondering what kind of dry season can South Florida expect for the end of 2021 and the start of 2022? And what kind of winter will our friends in higher latitudes be dealing with this season? Luckily, our friends at NOAA have released their winter outlook and thus helping our friends at the National Weather Service here in Miami release their dry season outlook specifically for South Florida. I had the opportunity to speak with one of the meteorologists at the Weather Service here in Miami and he gave me all the details on what we can expect this season. Take a listen. And joining me today to give us some insight on the dry season outlook for South Florida is Robert Moyeda, Warning Coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service here in Miami. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Erica. Thank you for having me. One. So let's jump right in. I know that we here um, on broadcast and even in your office and, you know, everyone in the weather industry, we we tend to talk about El Nino and La Nina. And maybe for us, that's a term that we are all very familiar with, but maybe the average person at home doesn't really know exactly what La Nina and El Nino mean. Can you explain what each one is? Sure. Uh, El Nino and La Nina, uh, they're naturally occurring phenomena. And basically, uh, to try to describe it as simply as possible, uh, it, they result from interactions between the ocean surface and the atmosphere over the tropical Pacific Ocean. So that's the area that we're looking at here, the tropical Pacific. Uh, so specifically, El Nino and La Nina relate to changes in the ocean surface temperature in the tropical Pacific. And these changes in the ocean surface temperature, uh, they affect 
tropical rainfall patterns. And then, then they also affect the winds, the atmospheric winds over the Pacific Ocean. And then, the, and then those changes in rainfall and winds in turn impact the ocean temperatures and currents. So it's kind of like a feedback. Think of it as, you know, changes in, changes in the ocean surface temperature affect rainfall in the atmosphere above, and then those changes go back and affect the ocean. So it's kind of like a feedback. So the El Nino and La Nina specifically relate to alternating warm and cool water cycles. And each one occurs about every three to five years on average, or, or they, they, they come about every three to five years. So El Nino is the warm water version of this. So that's when the tropical Pacific Ocean is warmer than normal. Uh, La Nina is the opposite. La Nina is the cold water uh, version of it. That's when waters are cooler than normal in the tropical in the tropical Pacific Ocean. So that so that's where we get more specifically into the two phases of this uh, cycle of ocean surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific. Okay, good. So now that we have that, which honestly that was the best explanation I've ever. Well, I think it would be easy for me to explain to my family that versus what they normally ask me. I'm like, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, I know. No, it's, it's not an easy thing to explain. That's why I said, I'll try to answer it as simply as possible. Well, I think you did great. So Two. now that we have that and we, we have a general understanding of what El Nino versus La Nina means, Recently, NOAA re released their outlook for the upcoming winter season. Can you tell us a little about, about the winter forecast and what that means on a national level from coast to coast? Yeah, the uh, winter outlook is calling for, well, for the southern, really the entire southern tier of the United States, it's calling for uh, warmer than normal and also drier than normal con uh, conditions. So again, this pretty much covers the, really not just the Southern tier, it actually covers most of the United States. And really, if you look at the map of the US, uh, as far as temperatures are concerned, uh, really it's the entire Eastern United States and then uh, a good part of the central part of the country and then the Southern tier all the way, really all the way from Florida, all the way to California. Uh, most of California have uh, increased odds of above normal temperatures. Now. On the precipitation side, uh, the the likelihood of drier than normal conditions is a little bit more confined to the southern tier. That's I guess maybe what I was thinking about earlier. So that so that basically includes Florida, the southeast United States, running westward across the southern part of the country, including Texas, all the way out into southern California. Uh, then the only areas that they have indicated for potentially being uh, having above normal precipitation would be like in the northeast U.S. Uh, the Great Lakes area, as well as the uh, Northern Rockies and the Pacific Northwest. Three. So that's coast to coast. And now you mentioned drier and warmer as far as the Southern tier is concerned. So how would that compare to the dry season outlook that your office released for South Florida last week? Yeah, so what we do for when we uh, give the local outlook, we're basically going off of the NOAA's uh, NOAA's winter and dry season prediction, and we just try to give as much local detail as possible. So, of course, Florida being uh, the, the forecast for Florida being uh, for likelihood of above normal temperatures and below normal precipitation, that's what we're calling for 
at least as far as the outlook for here in South Florida. Um, so yeah, so we're basically just going off of that. Now they're um, on the Climate Prediction Center website. They're the ones you know do the national outlooks. They have uh, percentages okay. or probabilities of each of those occurring. So for for example, for temperatures, they have a 50 to 60 percent chance of above normal temperatures for Florida for basically the duration of the dry season. And then for precipitation, it's a 40 to 50% chance of below normal rainfall for Florida for the dry season. Okay, so that actually leads me to my next question. It's, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that 50 to 60% chance of above average temperatures. So that doesn't mean that every day through the upcoming months for South Florida, it won't be warm. There could be some days where we do get the cool downs that we normally tend to see anywhere between December, January, February, and early March. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, these outlooks are really an average of all the daily con all the daily weather. So, in other words, let's say for example, we take the winter portion of that. So, December, January, and February. You know, it's, it's about ninety days. So not every one of those 90 days, as you said, not every one of those 90 days is going to have uh, above normal temperatures and below, below normal rainfall. We're going to have some periods where it's going to be totally different, where we're going to have uh, you know, cool temperatures or we're going to have rainfall. Um, so, so this outlook is capturing the average over a longer period of time with the understanding that there are going to be day-to-day -day or maybe even week-to-week -week or sometimes even month-to-month -month variation in what actually occurs. So uh, yes, it, that's important for people to know. Um, also, those probabilities are, are good to know too, because this is, you know, this is not something that is 100% guaranteed, obviously. I mean, weather very little is 100% guaranteed, especially when you talk about a long-term outlook, uh, you know, an outlook of, of weather uh, that, that may occur months down the road. So for example, we take the precipitation uh, probability was 40 to 50% that they're indicating. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that there is a 50 to 60% chance that it, it would be some, that it would be either near normal or perhaps even above normal. So you know, I guess you can kind of look at it that way. So really we're looking at three different probabilities here. We're looking at the probability of above normal mm -hmm. for the probability of near normal and the probability of below normal. So those three, which one is the highest? Well, for Florida, the highest of the three probabilities is for above normal temperatures and for below normal precipitation. But considering the, the chance, the lower chance, but a chance nevertheless that's, that one of the other two could still occur. Right, exactly. So it is important for, for the average person at home to just know that these outlooks are for the season as a whole and that there could be day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week variations within that whole season. Exactly. Okay, so that's the best way. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned those percentages because I know when people hear warmer and drier for the South, we're thinking, okay, 80s and 90s through the winter and South Florida's just scorching. I was like, no, it's not like that, actually. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Now, it may we may have more days than normal like that, but not every day. Now, you mentioned precipitation being the 40 to 50% chance we all know in spring is when uh, South Florida tends to get um, better chances, at least for some severe weather, 
your typical spring-like weather conditions. Now, Five. would you say that this, because of the outlook now that storm systems will be tracking a little farther north, and maybe that's why we're looking at slightly drier conditions as a whole through the season? That's that's probably the primary reason. That's one of the things when we have uh, La Nina occurring during the winter or dry season in, in, in the United States, or well, the winter and dry season for Florida, but really the winter season across the across North America. One of the things that we've seen with past La Nina events is a tendency for the jet stream, that current or really fast air that moves at, at, at around 30, 35,000 feet, for that jet stream to be a little bit farther to the north than it normally would be. So this would put it more over the central or maybe even the northern United States from time to time. So storm tracks, you know, the, the, these winter systems that often move out of the Pacific or move in, you know, from the Pacific Ocean, move west to east across the country, they generally tend to follow the storm track or they, the storm tracks, I'm sorry, follow the jet stream. Right. So, the, so the, the closer that Florida is to those storm tracks, the more typically the more likely it is that we're going to get rainfall or, and severe weather closer, the closer we are to those storm tracks into the jet stream. The farther away that, that jet stream and those storm tracks are, the less moisture that's going to be available for these fronts to work with, and therefore less possibilities, not zero, not zero, but less of a chance or fewer potential episodes of severe weather, like you said, especially during those during the uh, spring months is when we typically start to get some of that, uh, potentially get some of those systems affecting Florida. Right. And then as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, again, there could be, you know, week to week variations with this where maybe the jet stream is a little farther south. And those are the times where right. fronts and storm systems will actually make it across South Florida and of course could lead to some more um, severe weather potential, I guess I should say. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why we don't say we don't say there's a zero percent chance. In fact, I remember in 2018, the January 2018, we were in a La Nina pattern and it was a pretty well defined one. But we still ended up with a with a pretty strong severe weather episode uh, across Florida. In fact, there were, I think there were two tornadoes mm -hmm. uh, for, on, a, on a single day in January 2018 in South Florida. So that's a, that's a classic example. You know, the the average for that entire season might be, you know, very dry, very quiet from a severe weather perspective, but, uh, you know, but you could still get those one or two events, you know, that could be totally different from the rest of the season. Right. I guess it's similar, you know, during hurricane season where we can go through the entire name on the list, yet it was an active season, yet here in South Florida, we didn't have any issues or at least any direct impacts from any of these strong systems. So one would think, oh, it was a quiet season. When in all, we went through all the names through W. So, you know, it depends on how you look at it, really. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, what, we're, so what we're really talking about here is occasional breaks right. in what the prevailing pattern might be. So sometimes even in a La Nina winter, that jet stream is going to take a, a dip to the south. Right, you know, right. And it, there's nothing that says it can't do it. And, and, and it will do it from time to time still, just not as frequently or not as strong possibly. So that's, well, I think, yeah, I think those are important points to remember. And I think many in South Florida hope that it does take a little bit more of a dip because we would like some cool downs here, especially around the holidays, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, there are people I know that they, you know, they, they don't want any cool weather or, you know, they don't want anything below, anything below 60, you know, they, they, they start feeling uncomfortable. But yeah, I think, I think most people like a 
seemed to like a you know a change you know from from time to time you know our you know our cold snaps here are uh, you know are still not you know nothing compared to of course you know the northern U.S. where they have you know where their cold snaps means below zero temperatures our cold snaps you know typically are lows in the 40s maybe the 30s you know for the especially strong ones right. um, but that's you know you know that's, you know and of course it that does that does produce impacts to some groups of people. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be too dismissive of it, but for the most part, for the most part, compared to other parts of the country, you know, of course, uh, our cold snaps are, are, are not as severe, of course. Absolutely. And that's why most of us live down here. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> At least me. Six. So anyone who's lived in Florida or has been to Florida, the, the January date of that time, it snowed in South Florida. We all remember also how cold our winter was. Um, I believe it was January, February, 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. yeah, January, 2010, yeah. Oh, I remember those. My protein bars were freezing in the pantry. <laughs> I'm not even <laughs> exaggerating. They were rock solid. Um, but it's been some time since those dates and it seems like we really haven't had a cold, very cold winter, at least not like that in some time. So looking back at winter seasons, just on a whole, maybe in the last uh, 10 to 20 years here in South Florida, have you or are the folks at the Weather Service noticed a pattern of winters maybe trending a bit warmer on average for South Florida? Well, the last 10 winters uh, have been warmer than normal for, for South Florida. So really the, the last below normal winter we had temperature-wise was uh, the 2010-2011 uh, winter. So actually we had two back-to-back. -back. We did 2009-2010, which is the one you're referring to, and then the following winter we had in december of 2010 we had another we had actually a series of, of strong cold snaps in, in in that month so 2010 2011 was the last colder than normal winter so yeah we've had you know 10 in a row warmer than normal so that's i mean that's certainly a, a pretty well-defined trend now the decade before that the decade i guess you know between 2000 and 2010 we did have a few more uh, including these two we just talked about, we had a few more uh, winters that were, you know, below normal. So, you know, it's hard to extrapolate this forward and say, well, you know, how many, you know, is it, you know, are we going to have warmer than normal winters from now on? I mean, it's, of it's really, I mean, my, I suspect you know, we're, we're still going to have some colder than normal winters. Uh, now, how many are we going to have compared to the, to the past? That's hard. To, that's the question that's really hard to answer. Now, when you look at the bigger picture, uh, let's say, for example, we, we look at the 30 year normals, you know, for example, a current set of normals that we refer to uh, go from 1991 to 2020. So that 30 year period, the, you know, the temperatures really, and this is almost over, the, over most of the country, but if we just specifically talk about South Florida, our average temperatures in, in this, that 30 year period uh, are, you know, a bit, a little bit higher than the average temperatures from the previous period that we that we referred to, which was 1981 to 2010. So certainly there is a, you know, as we know, a, 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 an increasing trend in yearly temperatures across across South Florida. And that of course includes the uh, winter period as well. Now, going back to not only the outlook for this year, warmer and drier, but just that the last 10 years on average has been a bit 
on a, as a whole has been a bit warmer for South Florida. Seven. Relating that to hurricane season, you know, we all know it runs from Jan June 1st through November 30th, but we've also seen tropical systems form during what we call the off months. If our South Florida winters continue to run on the warmer side as they have been, do you foresee this to continue maybe like an increase in tropical systems forming earlier in the year on during the, what we call the off season? I, I don't think we're going to see much of a difference. Now, I'm, I, I answer this question in reference to the entire Atlantic Basin. You know, because, for example, uh, if, if we have a specific weather pattern here that's causing, for example, above normal temperatures, maybe, for example, um, La Nina, uh, just, to, just to use one example, there, there are more right. you know, things that we look at. It, that doesn't mean that that same condition is occurring in another part of the ocean, in, a, in another part of the Atlantic Ocean. True. So, you know, I don't, yeah, I, I, my, my initial answer to that would be, I don't think we're going to see, be, well, first of all, we haven't seen uh, outside of the month of May, uh, there really hasn't been a well-defined uh, trend towards, you know, storms forming and, you know, off months, like, for example, like February or, or March or anything like that, or January, for example. So I still think they're, the, the, the tropical cyclone seasons are pretty well defined. Okay. I don't see, I don't foresee any significant changes to that. You know, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's impossible that you can't get an odd storm in the middle, you know, in the middle of the off season. But, you know, past records, including recent ones, show that you know we haven't had those again you know the the earliest that will sometimes get a tropical system and usually they may even be subtropical uh, would be in april and that's usually somewhere out you know in the you know in the middle of the atlantic ocean uh, i don't know if we've ever, ever had an april system even come close to the u.s now, now once you get towards the end of may middle or end of may then we're close enough to the beginning of hurricane season where there you know sure you, you can get occasionally some a, a tropical storm forming during that period but really anything before that would be extremely rare and i think it still is uh, extremely rare i think everyone at home will be happy to hear that because the six months of hurricane season are already long enough <laughs> and it right. feels like it just takes on and on so if we don't have to deal with it a day extra then that's probably a good thing absolutely <laughs> Robert, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us and, of course, sharing your knowledge on what exactly South Florida can expect in the upcoming months. We appreciate all that you do for the Seven Weather team. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Erica. Thank you very much for having me. The Seven Weather team would like to thank Robert Molleda and his team at the National Weather Service here in South Florida, who are basically the meteorologist brains behind the scenes, for always willing to lend a helping hand. We thank you for your knowledge and your efforts day in and day out in making our jobs in front of the camera much easier. We appreciate all that you do for us. As for me, that's all for today. I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado, 7 Weather. Thanks, Erica. Next week on Weather or Not, is the future of transportation really an electric car? Meteorologist Brain Cameron is charged up to steer us straight on this issue. That's in our next episode on November 23rd. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather 
and of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.